Welcome to Battle Rhythm, a podcast dedicated to security and defense issues from a Canadian and international perspective. I'm Steve Sadman. I hold the Patterson Chair in International Affairs at Carleton University. I'm also Director of the Canadian Defense and Security Network. Battle Rhythm is a part of the Canadian Defense and Security Network's podcast network, available on Apple, Spotify, Stitcher, SoundCloud, and all the usual places to get your podcasts. Please join us every two weeks for our new episodes of Battle Rhythm, and also check out the other podcasts in our network. Uh, you can find them, again, on our website or at the CDSN Podcast Network on your favorite podcast provider. And before we start, we should acknowledge that our podcast is produced at Carleton University, which is located in unceded Algonquin Territory, which is home to the Anishinaabe Nation. Thank you. Welcome back to Battle Rhythm. Today we have Artur Wilczynski, who has a varied background across all of uh, the defense and security community in Canada. And that's great because the topics we have today do travel across many different sectors. And it's good that we ha we're going to have a fulsome discussion about all the different angles. And we're really focused on three sets of issues today. The first is the dispute with India. I don't know what to call it. I don't want to call it a tiff or a spat because that makes it less serious. Somebody is dead as a result of this. And us betting on India as a way to balance against China is, has always been a bit iffy, given the Hindu nationalist party of it all, the Modi of it all, depending on a country led by a, a nationalist populist leader, was never going to be easy. But now our relationship is more than just a bit fraught. There's a lot to talk about here, Arthur. I guess the first thing is you've been to India representing Canada and dealing with terrorism and counterterrorism issues. When you first saw the news about this, about the prime minister speaking in parliament about the assassination on Canadian territory, what did you think? What was your first reaction? My first reaction was how truly exceptional the prime minister's statement was. And my, my second reaction was they must have some information, some intelligence that they judge as high value and with high confidence for make that, to make that kind of accusation, specifically in the House of Commons on the day that parliament returns. My experience with, uh, with government has shown that Canada is remarkably cautious and reluctant to attribute hostile state activity, even when the evidence can be pretty compelling. So for the prime minister to do that, when all of the strategic issues that you outlined in your, in your intro would be, you know, front of mind for him and his advisors, just told me that they must be very confident in, in the information that they have. Well, and also that, the, that it was about to be leaked by Robert Fife. So I think that was also putting pressure on them. But still, it, it was very striking. Yeah, I think that, the, you know, people have made, a, made quite a bit of the, of, uh, of the potential timing of Fife's disclosure. And, and I think since then, there, it's been clear that there were a number of journalists that were sort of pursuing a, a similar angle for the story. For those of us who, uh, you know, who follow national security for, for a while, when the murder of Mr. Najjar was, was made public back in, in June, and his particular profile and background was raised, I think, it, it, you know, the, the potential there, uh, though we were, you know, I personally was shaking my head that it can't be, it shouldn't be, but that the potential of, of, of some kind of actors behaving in a way that supported India's nationalist agenda wouldn't have surprised me. Again, the, the way that it, that it came to light and, and the, uh, the ongoing consequences of it, I think, are something that are, are remarkable and I think unprecedented in Canadian history. I guess one of the confusing things about all this is how this is perceived here and how it's perceived in India, that 
can you tell us a little bit about the folks in Canada who are Sikh activists? Do, you know, we know that in 1985, uh, a plane was brought down by Canadian-based Sikhs, killing over 320 people. And that shook the intelligence community and shook in US, uh, Canada-Indian relations. So India is now citing Indian activists and the government in Europe. They're citing that event as part of a larger pattern of, of Canadian-based Sikh terrorism. Now, you can't speak to the classified stuff that you used to swim in, but do we code this individual as being a terrorist, that, that there are bases in Canada being used to train people to engage in violence, or has this been exaggerated widely? Look, I mean, I... It's clear that what happened in 1985 up to the, with the bombing of Air India was that that was a Canadian planned and, and, and executed terrorist attack. And until the, the attacks of September 11th in New York and in Washington and Pennsylvania, that was the single biggest terrorist attack in history. I also will note that the reaction at the time, and it was part of the inquiry that, that came from it, was that Canadian uh, officials... Uh, extended condolences to the government of India. It was very much seen as an international thing, as opposed to sort of a self-reflection around, uh, number one, that most of the victims were, were Canadian. Number two, the, uh, the effect of allowing certain segments of uh, the Sikh independence movement to grow as much as they have in, in a way that was as violent as it did. And my experience over, uh, you know, when I was in international affairs and both at public safety, where I worked specifically on the Air India file, but then also at global affairs when I was director general for security and intelligence, the Indian government has consistently over many, many, many years complained to Canada that there were elements of the community here that were pursuing an agenda that was violent that was calling for an independent state in uh, in India and that that was incompatible with our you know relations as as friendly states and i think that you know there is nothing that rationalizes or justifies what happened uh, and the potential of a foreign state coming in and murdering a canadian citizen in an extrajudicial way uh, i think that one has to condemn that, one has to investigate that, and people need to be brought to justice. But I do think that there needs to be some self-reflection around uh, what and how various communities in Canada engage in activities that are perceived by foreign states as hostile to their interests. And I think that, that we as Canadians and our institutions that are meant to protect us need to have a more candid conversation about what the risks and, and potential consequences of that kind of behavior is. So whether or not it's, it's India reacting as violently as it has in this case, supposedly, or other states, whether it's Iran, whether it's Russia, whether it's you know, Eritrea and others, they will and have taken action that, uh, that is against Canadian interests. And I think this is part of the conversation we need to include in, in reflecting on foreign interference in this country. What are the motivations of those mm -hmm. hostile state actors? And I don't think we've had enough of that conversation. You know, China doesn't really care about what Canada's policy is on, on health care or what Canada's policy is on carbon capture and storage. Where they engage and what their interests are do intersect with their own national interests. What I think we haven't done as good a job in Canada at explaining and then protecting is that Canadians absolutely have a right to take strong positions within the scope of the rule of law, to criticize, to advocate for positions that are not in the interest of foreign states. We have freedom of expression. We have freedom of association. And Canadians, I think, need to understand what the potential consequences are when other states believe that we have crossed a line. And we have to make sure that our, our institutions, like our, our police forces, our intelligence services, are, are speaking candidly with Canadians about the risk 
and doing what they can to ensure that Canadians can exercise those rights freely and without fear. And I guess when I look at this, I think about what is the threat to India? And, and yes, they've overreacted. But one of the questions is, is Canada base, uh, base for terrorism? Are we India's Afghanistan? And there's different That's ways. Hyperbole. To, I know yeah. it's hyperbole, but, let's, but, but I'm using it to, to illustrate some things. So uh, is Canada, does Canada have training bases for Sikhs to engage in terrorist activities against India? I'm assuming the answer to that is no. Is there a flow of money from Canada to groups in, in India that are opposed to the government of India? I would probably assume that is yes, because we allow remittances and remittances can happen in all kinds of ways. We had money flowing into our country to support convoy uh, folks last year. And as the local expert on terrorist financing, which would be Jess Davis, suggests our laws and our enforcement of our laws on the flows of funding to terrorists and other folks like that is bad. So the Indians might have a, a righteous complaint that we might not be enforcing or restricting the flow of money to extremists. But again, as you noted, that does not warrant whacking Canadians on Canadian territory. Right. I mean, I think that, look, Canadians do undertake activities that are perceived by other states as hostile to their interests. Whether or not it's fundraising for a separatist entity, whether it's providing you know, uh, propaganda or other kinds of, of support to things like separatism, you know, it is not surprising that, that states react negatively to that. And I think, again, we need to have a frank conversation about those kinds of, of things. But there are appropriate venues for those states to, uh, to express their, their profound and, and deep dis, you know, dissatisfaction action with, uh, with the progress that the government of Canada might be making. You know, embarrassing Canadians on the international stage around this is completely legit. Pointing out, uh, you know, through their own intelligence networks, okay, Canada, you say that you're, you're supporting of the rule of law. How come you're enabling these countries, uh, sorry, these actors to behave in a way that breaks the rule of law? And why aren't you holding them accountable? And, and I think that there's a level of power in that. But I think that it's, it's, it's particularly, I think, concerning that so many state actors feel that actually operating on Canadian soil can be done with relative impunity, that the, the cost the consequences of disclosure of those activities isn't as high for them as it should be. And that's why I think we need to, to look at how do we implement more effective measures to constrain and prohibit and inhibit the actions of those states in, in taking action that is contrary to the rule of law and, quite frankly, very dangerous for Canadians. So what do you suggest we do about it? What, what should be the measures or policies that what forms that we make so that way Canada's not as easy to beat up on? Well, I think that we should we should take stronger action. We should we should convey in I think a fairly strong manner in a public way what the risks are of advocating for the breakup of an ally. It, and and for the government of Canada to be fairly clear that that kind of activity, while maybe is the legitimate purview in a in a free and open society where you can say whatever you want within within certain constraints, or I'm not 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 breaking the law, but that it is not Canadian government policy. And I think that too often Canadian foreign policy has been, a, and security policy, if I could throw them in together, has been a, a, a function of domestic community politics, as opposed to a clear-eyed examination of what are our national interests as a whole. Well, and so, I, just to interrupt, yes, I, I get that Trudeau's visit a few years ago to India was clearly an effort to pander to the domestic population that whenever Trudeau goes to Asia, it does seem as if it's he's mostly thinking about the diaspora communities in, in Canada. 
But what I was asking was something different, which is what can we do better to contain, constrain, limit the intelligence agencies of other countries operating in Canada? Again, I think that, uh, you know, sunshine, you know, <laughs> talk about it and give people an honest evaluation in a public forum about what those activities are. I think that, again, is if when there is fundraising that is inappropriate, that does contribute to illegal activities in other countries, we need to make sure that our police force, and again, like you said, uh, Jess is far more capable and, and, and able to speak to the specificity of that kind of legal framework. But it should be strengthened to ensure that police have the resources to prosecute and to impede that kind of behavior. That when we speak to friends and allies that, uh, that have expressed concern to us about behaviors of our nationals, that we take that seriously and when it is appropriate and when the behavior of our own nationals crosses legal thresholds, we prosecute. And also have a, you know, there's nothing wrong with reviewing our legislation and our legal framework either to make sure that we have an appropriate balance between that freedom of expression, between that freedom of association, and making sure that Canada isn't a base by which a whole wide range of diasporas might express interest in the political and security postures of their countries of origin. Because I think that, you know, that's dangerous. That's dangerous for us as an actor in the global environment. It undermines our credibility in all kinds of issues that are of interest to us. It's dangerous for our nationals because when you're po poking around with some regimes that are willing to take the kind of risks that we're talking about, people get hurt. And also, quite frankly, uh, you know, getting engaged in that kind of external civil strife does nothing to build community relations and appropriate sort of social cohesion in a country as diverse as Canada, where sort of the ethnic dimensions and the cultural dimensions of conflict that occur around the world are too easily reproduced here. We've seen this with, for example, uh, very recently with, you know, riots in, in places like uh, like Calgary and Edmonton, where members of the Eritrean community have gone after one another, not because of anything that's happened here, but because of perceptions of what's gone on there. And the danger in this kind of debate is that it validates, I think, some aspects of the, of the extreme anti-immigrant, anti-diversity you know, movement in Canada to criticize immigration. It's too easy for them to sort of point to that and say, hey, we need to stop this immigration because we're getting drawn into some of these, these conflicts. And I think that that's dangerous too. Okay, let me ask the question a third time because I, I'm still not directing you to the right place, which is what can the Canadian government do to stop intelligence services from other countries to mess with Canadians besides warning the Canadians about the fact that they'd be messed with? Well, I mean, again, strengthening the the, the resources of our, our counterintelligence capability. That means more resources for CSIS. That means more investment in, in authorities that will allow Canada and Canadian organizations like CSIS to undertake investigations into the behavior of, the, of those, those states. To be far more active, for example, in, in declaring intelligence actors or, or their proxies persona non grata if they happen to be here uh, as, uh, as diplomats under the protection of the Vienna Convention, kicking them out. I think being far more assertive in, in showing that there are consequences when we find out, as opposed to sort of, you know, we got to calculate what, you know, how this is going to affect our posture in, a, in country X or Y. I think right now the, the calculus seems to be uh, on the part of our, some of our adversaries is that the cost of operating in Canada is again, like I said, low, we need to increase the cost, but we also, and so I don't know if that answers your question more directly, okay. yeah. uh, but, but I think again, 
a big chunk of this is making sure that our communities are resilient to this in the first place, that they understand what the risks are and what Canada's parameters actually are, as opposed to sort of staying silent because we don't want to get in the middle of these politics because these, these community politics in Canada have real consequences in terms of our own domestic politics, even though the, the motivations behind those dynamics are purely uh, international. Let's move on to something that is even more of a clear mess up, uh, which is when we originally scheduled this conversation uh, between you and I, we were going to talk about Zelensky's visit and what that meant for Ukraine. It's become something else entirely, which is it's all become a focused on one 98-year-old Nazi who got to hang out in the parliament when Zelensky gave his talk, and everybody's seen that as an endorsement of, of Nazis, which it's not. Lots of folks are trying to make this seen as being sort of like, well, Nazis hang around Zelensky. This is all, you know, this is Russian, you know, the Russians are pointing out this. How could this happen where people aren't vetted when they go and are part of these events? This seems reeks of incompetence. I'm just trying to figure out who's the most incompetent actor. Is the Speaker of the House? Is it parliamentary security? Uh, people are talking about the Prime Minister's office, but you know, in my, you know, I'm still confused about the role of PMO is in, in Canada, but vetting people, you know, in terms of their backgrounds for pre being present at a parliamentary event doesn't seem to be one of those things. But who screwed up and, and why did they screw up? And, you know, this is going to obviously be a distraction sauce for a while, but what the so hell? Yeah, what the hell is right? This is a, an unholy mess. Uh, what should have been, I think, a very positive public event for Ukraine, for uh, President Zelensky, and even for our government in terms of its unwavering support for Ukraine has turned, like you said, into a giant propaganda win for Putin and, and his regime. But I think that the, the issues that we talked about uh, just prior in terms of, of, of the foreign sort of dynamics of, of, of community politics have a role to play here as well, where my understanding, just by reading various statements from various actors, is that the Speaker of the House of Commons invited a person who is a constituent of, of his, who he had been presented to as a Ukrainian war hero, and that he his you know he unquestioningly and and without actually understanding the the historic context of the person thought it was okay to have him in the house and thought that it was okay to introduce him as a World War II veteran and a, a veteran of Ukraine's independence war against Russia. I have to say that when I heard that, I, I cringed and I said, ooh, I'm, and I thought, I'm sure somebody vetted him that this isn't, you know, one of the members of the, uh, the Galicia SS. But indeed, yeah, I was wrong in making that assumption. Nobody vetted this person according to, to what, I, what I have heard, which is not just the speaker making a massive mistake of judgment and a massive mistake from a political point of view and a diplomatic point of view. This for me is also a security concern, right? Uh, Zelensky is probably the, the number one target of a regime that has absolutely no problem as trying to and assassinating people on foreign soil. People should have known exactly who was in the House of Commons, what their risk profile was, now, there are a number of actors that I think should have. I don't know if they were. I don't know if this was a gap because I, I, I don't I don't follow you know, House of Commons security procedures that uh, that closely. Uh, and it's been a while since uh, since I was on on the Hill. But for somebody like Zelensky, one would have assumed that the Parliamentary Security Service would have gotten a list of all invitees, that they would have checked with the RCMP, with which they have very close working relations, that there would have been some kind of, of cooperation, either with the Office of Protocol to, at uh, Global Affairs Canada, 
or with the Privy Council office because this was a leader level visit, a high, high profile visit with a lot of potential risks. So, I mean, there's a lot of, of information we, we don't have. I think that we didn't dodge the political bullet, because and we're going to be paying for the consequences of that. But from a security perspective, I actually think that we're lucky that there wasn't any kind of a serious security incident on the Hill that could have resulted from the same kind of ineffective and uncoordinated preparation for the visit. So we don't know. It's just a giant mess. Well, again, uh, we do like Rota, the, the speaker said, my bad. I invited the guy. I'm the one who made the decision to acknowledge him in the gallery. You know, that's on him. But, you know, the system, which would have the, thought that it is okay to have a bunch of unvetted individuals in the house without going through some kind of security and, and quite frankly, political uh, analysis, I think that's a systemic problem. I think that people, the, the whole reason why we brought Mr. Zelensky into the House of Commons was to provide a political support, a political message. The risk of not knowing who is in, in, in that house could have, and at the end did have an effect on our ability to convey a strategic message of support for Ukraine. And instead, uh, the entire government of Canada and Canadians on the international level are meant to, to apologize. It's not just you know, Russia, who's noted this from a, from a political point of view. I don't know if you saw this, but like everyone from like the Polish embassy, you know, the Jewish community, veterans organizations, everybody is mightily peeved at what happened and do not feel that the, you know, that the apology from Speaker Rhoda is enough to address what has been this gargantuan error on the part of the, the overall governmental process. Yeah, it's just astonishing to me, particularly given to tie this to the previous thing, where the last time Trudeau went to, or not the last time, the previous time before that, that Trudeau went to India, somebody who had actually been found guilty of terrorism was invited along for one of the parties. And that played poorly there and it played poorly here. That's what the hell? Done. That, that, it's precisely that, that for me would have been like a massive wake up call, right? They've already gone through a situation where somebody went to a, even a side event uh, and, it, and there was real significant consequences politically and diplomatically for Canada as a result of that. We would have thought that we would have learned a lesson and that for these kinds of high profile event where the where the optics are the, uh, the, the deliverable, that they would have been far more diligent in, in screening, uh, again, both from a security and from a political perspective, the people who were there. And, you know, it, it takes zero effort to understand that the Russians are trying to portray the Ukrainian government, Zelensky, who happens to be Jewish, as Nazis, that anything that would tie that those two themes together would have real consequences. And given the, the history in Canada, given the very, very specific conversations that have happened, for example, about the commemoration of the SS Galicia division, even in Canada, have made it into Russian propaganda, that people would have been mindful that, you know, inviting a, and I'm using air quotes for your audience here, a, you know, a, a, a Ukrainian, you know, World War II vet who fought against Russia that should have set off major alarm bells. And if not, we have a real issue with historical literacy in this country. Yeah, I, I think that there's a lot of problems here. It was just such an own goal. <clears throat> yeah, it, it was absolutely an own goal. And I think, again, this is why I think that, that in terms of what should happen next, you know, Speaker Rota has apologized. I'm not sure that that's, uh, that's enough, either from, from him specifically in terms of this massive lapse in judgment and 
protocol on his part. But I also think that, again, this is something that Canada needs to, needs to apologize uh, for and needs to, to convey uh, at a more official level uh, to the government of Ukraine its regret in terms of what this has done in, uh, in, for providing Russia with a, with a propaganda win. And I do think that the prime minister should, uh, should go up and apologize. He should uh, undertake a review. Uh, he should ask the Minister of Foreign Affairs and the Speaker's office, uh, Speaker both of the House of Commons and the Speaker of the Senate, because both of those, uh, those entities are accountable for security on, on the parliamentary precinct, to figure out how to put in place the right procedures that this kind of thing doesn't happen again, because the risks are too great and we're already paying for them. And I think that that is really quite embarrassing for Canada and Canadians. Well, that's a lot. So let's go on to one more thing uh, before we conclude the day. We were talking beforehand about something else that was going on here and whether it fit into the remit of the city ascendant of algorithm. And that is the weaponization of parental rights, that we had protests across the country last week by anti-trans folks who want to assert that parents should have total control over the kids. In fact, many Science referred to the kids as being their property of, of their parents. What seems to be going on here is that there are groups in Canada, like in the United States, that are weaponizing the most vulnerable people. And since you have been an activist with this on LGBTQ issues within the Canadian government and beyond the Canadian government, I'm guessing you have opinions on this dynamic going on these days. And again, I think it matters for Canadians because ultimately these kinds of activities are going to incite violence. And that's where it's a security issue. It's also a security issue in that we're seeing the far right in the Canada imitating the far right in the United States. And extremism is dangerous. They're trying to make various legislation and, and policy changes to harm a subset of people. And again, in my view, this is not the end of the game. It is the opening shot of reversing the progress that has been made over the past 30 or 40 years in terms of LGBTQ rights. Yeah, I, I couldn't agree more. It, it is something that causes me immense uh, concern. I'm, I'm a member of the LGBTQ2 plus community. And for me, this is something that's very personal. It's something that also, from a security perspective, is, I think, a real fundamental issue. This is not just a Canadian problem. This is a global problem, and people need to understand that the, the actors that are, are fanning the flames of this kind of regression, this kind of attack on human rights, don't really have parental rights in their mind. That is a vector that they have effectively engaged to try and, as you said, roll back the fundamental human rights of, uh, of the, the queer community. We've seen the way that, for example, certain actors based in the U.S., have spent you know, tens of millions of dollars to try and get legislation passed in Africa that criminalizes uh, the LGBTQ uh, community. You see it in Uganda, where they passed legislation calling for the death penalty for, quote, aggravated homosexuality. You see the same legislation that is now finding its way into countries like Kenya and Tanzania. It's also being amplified by hostile state actors like Russia, like Saudi, like Iran. And I think that this is why it is particularly pernicious and particularly dangerous. The premise of the entire thing also for me is, is, is fundamentally broken, right? People are saying this is about parental rights. But the premise that the parental rights are, are, are behaving on is that members of the LGBTQ community are somehow trying to, in, quote, indoctrinate or groom their children to be engaged in inappropriate sexual relations, that this is around attacking children and trying to make them something that they are not. And sort of the tactics that, that this movement is using of labeling anyone who uh, tries to support 
trans kids, who tries to support the community in being visible and, and countering, you know, centuries of, of exclusion and violence and discrimination through various uh, acts of, of, of visibility. Th that aim to make us disappear again, I think, is, is using tactics meant to dehumanize us. And I felt it directly, right? Like I've been threatened. I've been called a groomer online. I've been uh, told, you know, stay away from kids because I, I advocate on behalf of, of trans rights. And I think that the, the likelihood of that kind of rhetoric crossing the Rubicon into physical violence uh, against members of the community is absolutely real. And I think that the government needs to take it very seriously, number one. And number two, I'm particularly worried that certain political actors in Canada are riding this wave for partisan benefit because too many people are you know, being engaged in the discriminatory tropes of members of the LGBTQ community as predators. And again, that, that is a violent proposition. And uh, you know, I'm still trying to figure out how to, how to fight back against it, other than just being vocal and mouthy as I usually am. Well, that's why we have you on the podcast, so that you can be vocal and mouthy about these issues. Yeah, um, try my best. It's really appalling to me what's going on because it is so very dangerous. And it's a very, I mean, from my standpoint as a political scientist, it's a very strange uh, stance for the conservatives to be playing around with because the middle of the, of the Canadian public is different than the middle of the American public. That is that LGBTQ2S rights are further along here, that there's a greater acceptance here than the United States. And the votes are in the middle. If they're chasing after the votes of the PPC, they're going to lose the votes of the folks in the middle. And they're going to read the Wormwood, which is one of the reasons why the Republican Party is having a real problem with young people, is that young people are more open. They have more friends who are part of this community. And so even if they themselves are not in it, they don't want to see their friends beaten up for being gay or lesbian or trans or any other category. And so the conservatives are going to alienate the kids of Canada and make, make that a voting block that, that is beyond their reach. Because again, the, most of the kids are all right. They have a greater tolerance. I'm not sure I agree with you. You know, I think it's precarious and it always has been. Mm -hmm. And I think that, that the social stigma of discrimination has been whittled away over the past, I'd say, you know, three to five years mm -hmm. uh, against the LGBTQ community. And I think that people are using, I think, a deep-seated misunderstanding, lack of empathy, in particular for, for trans persons and for sort of gender non-conforming persons as the wedge, which will, I think, undermine confidence in, in the entire community. I think that the, the angle of parental rights mm -hmm. uh, and, uh, is one that is very effective. And I think parental rights, if, you know, if you don't understand what you're actually talking about, are very a natural thing for many Canadians sure. to, want to, to want to defend. Look, it, I completely understand. Parents want to be involved in, in their kids' lives. Parents want to know what you know how their kids are, are affected. That that's not what's what what's at at play though. What what I think the extreme right is using is people's I think uh, again deep seated uh, discriminatory uh, fears that they, they're using the tropes of uh, of gay, lesbian, trans and other you know, sexual minorities as predators, as people who are trying to go after their kids, 
they're using that as uh, as a way to, I think, undermine people's support for the community. And I think they're being effective. That's what drives me nuts. If you look at the polling, it's overwhelming in support of quote parental rights. And I think how you know the challenge for uh, for for folks like like me and 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 you and others who 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 want to have an inclusive and and welcoming society for all is how do you have this conversation without validating that basic trope that that says yeah parents have a right to be worried about their kids being exposed to 2SLGBT persons because 2SLGBT persons are a threat and they also have a right to be concerned because being a member of the community is something to be ashamed of and something mm-hmm. to be discouraged so those two premises Mm-hmm. imbue the entire movement, which is why I think it's so dangerous. And I think we're, you know, I'm struggling and I know others are to find an effective strategy that doesn't validate or doesn't start as a, at as a point of departure, you know, a- acceptance of the premises uh, of the parental rights argument in this case. And, but again, oh. the, at the end of the day, this is a, this is, is a security issue because I'm afraid that like, when people fear that their kids mm-hmm. are in danger, that rationalizes pretty well anything in people's minds. No, I, I get that. I get that. I just think that I, I wish we could do a better job of, of showing that the threat to kids from predators are usually in churches, you know, sports clubs, schools. It's so appalling to me because, you know, I, I've known families who've lost their their trans kids to suicide. Yeah. And it is the most vulnerable community in Canada, potentially besides Indigenous people. And, and the two intersect. Right? And the two intersect because they're far right targets them both. And the reality is that, you know, what this is the infection of QAnon and all the rest where people are suspecting the wrong people who are the predators. It's the, the predators in our society are not the LGBTQ. These are not the people who are dangerous. Women are not getting raped in bathrooms by trans people. They're getting raped in bathrooms by men. It's it's kind of like we're so worried about you know pedestrians being harmed by cars. We put out signs about pedestrians be careful about where you walk, as opposed to the fact that our cars are getting larger and larger and larger, and people are being not held responsible for, for running over over pedestrians and bicyclists. We. Uh, we as a society, we democracies as a rule, tend to have rather lousy assessment of risk. And so we, you know, we focus more on terrorism than we do on cops killing people. Who's killing more people in Canada, the cops or the terrorists? And you, we could go, you know, disease, what's, what's the biggest killer? Is it whatever? Or is it is it cancer? Is it heart disease? Is it COVID? We tend to constantly be focusing on the things that are, are sexy in the media, but aren't what are really the threats to our lives. The threat to India, for instance, is not Sikh terrorism because there really isn't that much Sikh terrorism these days. The threat to India is, well, the Modi regime and it's inciting the violence against the minorities. But, you know, that that's where the violence is. So we have a tendency across the world, and particularly with a rising populism, to emphasize the wrong folks as threats. And so we need to do a better job of pointing out the realities. But the problem is, is as you're right, that once you start working up emotions about protecting your kids, then these things get to be really hard to get through the facts. I was talking to somebody who was very smart last week about this stuff, and this person was saying, I get it, I get it, but when you know when I talk think about my kids, I'm like, yes. When you think about your kids and want to know what rights, you know, what your kids are doing, well, you're a good parent and you're not likely to ostracize them if they come out. But we also have as a society have to think about all the parents who are crappy parents who would likely ostracize their kids if they came out as lesbian, gay, trans to us, 
otherwise asexual, whatever it is, there are crappy parents out there and we need to think about what happens to them. That is a risk to the, the real risk to kids. The real kids at risk aren't, you know, people being seduced into being gay. It's the folks who already are gay, already are lesbian, already know that they are, are trans and they face the risk of being ostracized and being, uh, have violence aimed against them. Yeah, but this is, I mean, like, I, I'm kind of, I, I'm, I'm smirking a little because that, that's the biggest lie is that somehow you can be uh, convinced to being gay or that yeah. you can you can somehow be cajoled into being trans, that this is something that, hey, people are doing because they think it's, it, you know, it's, it's, it's the style, it's, it's, it's popular. It's nonsense. You know, life, you know, it is one of the biggest fears is being fundamentally different. It is, this is not something that people just kind of join because they, 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 they read a story or see a drag show or it, this is an intrinsic part of who they are. And that's why the entire trope is non nonsense. But this is where it becomes really difficult because mm -hmm. all of that misinformation and disinformation is built on an emotional, historically ingrained mm -hmm. uh, narrative about the nature of our community that's only changed or started to change in the past you know, 30 years. So the, decriminal, the decriminalization of, of being in, in a same-sex relationship is within my lifetime. I advocated for, for marriage equality. I was involved in terms of trying to convince this now very progressive liberal party uh, to include sexual orientation, never mind gender identity and, and, and gender expression, into the Canadian Human Rights Code. These are fresh new things. Mm -hmm. So backsliding in, in, into sort of like regressive, discriminatory attitudes doesn't take much because it's there's only a thin veneer of equality on, on the surface that hasn't yet had a chance to establish itself and set. And that's why this is all so dangerous. You're absolutely right. The facts here are, have taken a, taken a vacation. You know who's at in danger when you, when you force, when trans persons need, are, are forced to go into a washroom that, that is uh, aligned with their gender at birth? Is the trans person that that's at risk of being raped and assaulted in, in the in the washroom? Kids who are forced to to, to use those washrooms uh, against their own identity are the ones who who face uh, face uh, risk of trauma and violence. Like you said, the risk of self harm, of becoming homeless, of of becoming then vulnerable to exploitation is orders of magnitude higher when the families are unresponsive or hostile. Uh, to their kids, uh, their kids' needs, and uh, I think that 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 entire data set has become victim to the same kind of attack on expertise and knowledge mm -hmm. that virtually all types of of expertise and knowledge have been uh, subject to to uh, to be discredited by by uh, certain actors on the extreme right. Whether you know you want to attack physicians because of vaccines or attack physicians and psychologists because they support uh, gender affirming care. Uh, this is, I think, a general generalized attack on knowledge, expertise, evidence, and research by those who like, uh, and I'm borrowing a, a phrase from you know, a character on, on Saturday Night Live, uh, on the truthiness uh, that, they, uh, that they feel is the right answer because it, it, it taps into a sentiment that's deeply ingrained in many cultures, particularly, you know, and I say this as someone who went to an Orthodox Jewish school, Judeo-Christian and Muslim Orthodox interpretations of, of religion that have conveyed a sense of shame and exclusion against members of the community. And again, for those of us who stand up to it, we are exposed to threats. We are exposed to violence. I'm just worried that those threats are going to manifest themselves in a real way. 
And we have to figure out a mechanism to, to address that increasing vulnerability and risk. Well, I appreciate that. And the, the only thing I want to correct to you is truthiness was not Saturday Night Live, it was Stephen Colbert. Oh, sorry. That's uh, okay. Not a problem. I really appreciate you being on the podcast because you give a clear perspective on these issues and the real stakes to be had. Not to mention all your expertise and all the various offices you've served in the Canadian government that made you relevant for the India conversation, made you relevant for the Zelensky Parliament conversation, and obviously make you quite a, an important person to talk to on, on these issues. So it's always a pleasure to talk to you, Arthur. You are one of the busiest men in show business since, since you are bilingual. So you appear on the Francophone podcast and you also are consulted not just by the LGBTQ2S community, but also by those folks fighting anti-Semitism. You've been speaking out in high schools in, in, in uh, Ottawa because the ignorance about the Holocaust is vast. Hopefully, one positive thing that can, might come out of the shenanigans of the past week is that people might go, wait, there were, you know, what were the Germans doing in Ukraine and, and, and why did the Ukrainians side with them? And let's remember Nazis all bad. So really appreciate your time. So Arthur, again, thanks for spending uh, uh, time with me. It's Thank always you. a pleasure. I always learn a lot. Good luck in, in all the different fights you have to, to fight. As, as you write, don't, even when you want to fight, it's not over. They're the forces that lose are always out there trying to uh, reverse things. Thanks for having me on. It's always a pleasure chatting with you.